Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. I lay awake at night thinking what's that wondering really uh what what do you think the energy is like when trump and pence are alone together because here's what i'm thinking here's what i'm picturing and i could be totally mm-hmm. wrong okay i imagine it's not entirely dissimilar to when kim and kanye are alone where <laughs> you have Two people that are crazy in very different directions. Yes. Like, Pence... Trump is a means to an end, right? Trump's a Mm -hmm. just... A a maniac, but... You know, he is... I mean, because, like, I can't imagine that Pence, who is super right-wing, moral, Christian conservative... Right. Must look at his reality television philanderous you know uh heathenistic <laughs> uh president co-worker and just be like Ugh. <laughs> you know he's like you know pence himself being a monster but just <laughs> you know a slightly kind of boring if uh, uh kind, kind of a, a real uh, real banality of evil for being honest, mm. so that that Very that true. phrase has never been used before, right? Oh, absolutely not. So I'm not saying Kim and Kanye are evil, but what do they uh-huh. talk about? Because Kanye, if nothing else, is very creative. Yeah. Um, Kim's good at PR. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> and you know, just like what what must that be like? To be to be a fly on the wall when either of those two uh, power couples are alone together. <laughs> I mean, I feel like with Kim and Kanye, they're just on their phones. Mm. Or maybe they have a really loving relationship. I don't really want to judge, but I-, I think they're on their phones. Yeah. Trump and Pence. Pence is always drinking a glass of milk in my <laughs> eyes. That's always how I see him. I don't know why, but he just gives off those vibes, you know. I think and it, I feel like, like it's like the the fucking like redneck family from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. What are they called? The um oh, uh, the, the, McPoyles. the McPoyles. Yeah, <laughs> it it gives Pence his nice you know gray corpse complexion, drinking all <laughs> oh, that milk. <laughs> and you know he probably also calls it mother's milk. Ugh, because every cow is a mother, like my wife. Or as I uh, call her mother. <laughs> oh, my God. You're giving me a vision I don't want, mm-hmm. Zan. I don't like this. Well, then vote. Or, oh. I mean, by the time people hear this, uh, yeah. they will have already voted. And we have no way of knowing <laughs> what 
uh, what what that energy will be. But let's just relish in the uncomfortable energy that we've created right now instead of whatever horrors are awaiting us on election day. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So, uh, we've got some pretty uh, cool reverb in here, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit echoey mm-hmm. um, due to our massive grand hall that we have here uh, filled with bookshelves, with scrolls, books, any and all information that you would have been able to see in antiquity during, you know, from from 283 BCE onward Whoa. to around the 400s. Whoa, okay, okay. Yeah. So this is it- the... This is the Uncanny County Museum's recreation of the famed Library of Alexandria. You would be correct. Yes, it is. In fact, we had to create it and reconstruct it pretty much from all of the information that we have on it. And Mm -hmm. due to the fact that we don't know exactly what the library would have looked like architecture-wise, we can paint a pretty good picture due to some of the descriptions left. For instance, like it's debated whether it was u- it was Hellenistic columns that were used to kind of prop up its its um, mm-hmm. its architectural standings with maybe Egyptian iconography involved or um, in front of it, or it was actually entirely Egyptian, given that Alexandria is in Egypt, in one of the major cities there, named after Alexander the Great, of course. Mm-hmm. So it's but a that, bit that, be, that itself being evidence of Greece's growing sphere of influence and really just all the yes. Hellenistic influence and huge cultural exchange that happens in antiquity mm-hmm. between Egyptians and the Greeks. I mean, a lot of oh, yeah. a lot of famous Greeks were Egyptians um, or were, yes. were living in Egypt. Um yeah, I mean, well, Alexander itself being <laughs> yeah. a Greek name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an important location and it's a thriving area during this time, both mm-hmm. in trade, influence, knowledge. Actually, it, it's interesting. We we kind of borrowed a little bit from how Assassin's Creed Origins, you know, the very fun uh video game that came out quite a bit ago when they redid their model on Alexandria we kind of borrowed but you know fixed fixed some things okay okay important to know I mean from what I know Assassin's Creed I'm not I'm not a video gamer I'm not a real gamer Mm -hmm. as as the kids say not a gamer Um, gamer. my brother does interestingly knows quite a bit about the geography of Florence a place that you and I have lived (laughs) because of Assassin's Creed which I, I do find is interesting. I am under the impression that they do research. Yes, they do. Um, mm-hmm. They basically, in those, they would scale everything down because it would be impossible to fit an entire city mm-hmm. within, a, within a file size unless you're Microsoft's flight simulator mm-hmm. where they put the whole world, but besides <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had a similar kind of background. I, I played all these games and was so involved in exploring these cities, and I think it's actually an interesting way to present information and actually the important part about this game was at least for me you know it's the first time you're going back to something in antiquity where Mm -hmm. you see greeks egyptians and romans and what that would look like and i think it's part of this like ongoing existential like debate i have with myself on like how do we remember history and is it just through like art 
and pop culture and kind of like film mm-hmm. where we're reconstructing this idea of what it was versus what it actually was. Yeah. And I, I kind of live with that all the time. And I think this game is an, is an, is a version of that. Just like our reconstruction is a version of that, but right. I don't know. There's a, there's an interesting question within it, but regardless <laughs> we have it and we have our, you know, more or less an installation of what it would have looked like and felt like to be a scholar during this time period, which I think is personally exciting as a yeah. history buff myself. Do you know much about the the library here in its history? Um, I know a couple of things about it, just that, you know, mm-hmm. it was a huge concentration of ancient knowledge um, and that it was famously destroyed. And I've never been entirely clear on the why of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think at least for someone in contemporary culture, the Library of Alexandria is just famous for... Um, I think the idea that humanity uh, can amass a huge amount of knowledge and that right. the like the, there's some there's some idea that if the library had not burned down, the Renaissance would have come earlier or correct that we that the Industrial Revolution might have come earlier. The Enlightenment might have come earlier that the that Western civilization suffered a huge setback with the burning of library, the library of Alexandria, you know, in, uh, in almost in kind of an equivalent way to the fall of the Roman empire leads to the loss of a lot of technologies that aren't rediscovered until later. Yeah, no, absolutely. You would be uh, very much correct in that presumption. And that's, that is the ongoing popular thought. It's a, it's a it. fun thought exercise. Like, what if? Absolutely. Exactly, exactly. And, and we never really will know. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do know is some of the historical evidence that presents it and some of the problems that happened during the time in which definitely are relevant today and have come mm-hmm. back to haunt us throughout history. Oh, you mean, you, you mean the, the idea of <laughs> uh, <laughs> destroying and discrediting uh, information uh, has not fallen out of favor? Uh, contrary to popular belief, it is not. Oh. It's been always present, and that's something we need to really work on. Well, information itself, the idea of information, mm-hmm. it, we we think of it, I think, in a modern context as well, right? Yeah. That, and, and you know, I think with the growing popularity of indigenous knowledge and uh, alternative histories, Mm-hmm. We're seeing, you know, the more of the shades of gray of it, but more or less, like, we kind of live in an age of more definite information. I mean, definite as in defined. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up, and I'm going to respond after I give this quick little lecture to our uh, tour here, because it's for sure going to come back, because it's okay. one of the major points. Okay. Because it's important, it's important to this, so keep... Hold that thought, because okay. I want to go over this and I'm bring everything into I'm a nice little, little... Maybe I'll, I'll, okay. I'll put it in the library so it's safe, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> so given, given what you're talking about in terms of information and where we're at now, where we can kind of see these alternate histories and other things, this was kind of the question um, under Alexander the Great, where because the, the Library of Alexandria is really his kind of like child, if mm-hmm. you will, his thought child that he always wanted after the his global conquest of the world or at least the known world right Mm -hmm. he he wants he he always wanted to kind of have a place where he could store information where 
it could be an empire of knowledge versus just kind of empire. Yeah. It, bit contradictory, but you know, good intention. I well, guess, you know, you'd have to one. imagine. Cause like, you know, we don't, Alexander is far back enough in history that, mm-hmm. you know, we have certain records and we have names of certain people, but already, mm-hmm. you know, like we don't know, you know, there's not a lot of people that far back that we know their names, right? Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, he is yeah. arguably one of the most important leaders. And even the way he kind of structured his empire. I mean, this man just yeah. liked to fight, and that was kind of his deal. But, but like, it, it had to be on his mind that yeah. um, leaders come and go and are forgotten because yes. he is already existing in a civilization and he is coming into contact with other civilizations the thought had Uh to cross you know everyone's mind that you know history is going to keep swallowing us unless Mm -hmm. we do something with lasting enough impact 100 percent. yeah you you sum that up very nicely i have to say (laughs) because that's exactly what's on his mind and what's well it's he's my he's my namesake so you know oh do you think he went by zan too um, they just left that out. I, you know, I wonder. I wonder how different the Greek pronunciation of Alexander oh, is. The yeah. interesting thing is, and I guess I'll just drop some Ashkenazi knowledge or some Ashkenology, if you will. Oh, Alexander. When the Jews went through uh, Greece, through the eastern half of the Roman Empire, uh they did pick up a lot of uh, Greek names. So there are there's a period mm. of time where a lot of Jews have uh, Greek names because they are, you know, essentially Jewish Greeks. Interesting. Um, and the name Alexander actually does get Yiddishized uh, to sender. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That is, that's a fun fact. I like that. Yeah. Uh, as you were saying. Sorry. Oh, yeah. No, don't worry about it. But yeah, so this is kind of his his birth child and his idea of what he wants. But unfortunately, he died before he could kind of get that off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really done under Ptolemy I, his successor, mm-hmm. uh, and started around like 283 BCE, in which this on this kind of like construction and imagination of this library is coming to kind of a physical... It's yeah. being brought to life. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so it's it's it's... Put in the royal district of the city. And so it's in kind of like the more upper class, beautiful section. They really want this to be the highlight of the city. And mm-hmm. it takes quite a while to build. So it's it's like being done under Ptolemy the first, but really it's like coming to a close, I think, under the second and then into the third. God. Yeah, it takes a while. Well, yeah, I mean, construction <laughs> projects used to last so long. Do we have any idea how big it was? Big. Big. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, we. I'm not entirely sure down to the like uh, measurements, mm-hmm. but rather large. I mean, this contained virtually all of the knowledge that they could fit in it and enough for people to get lost in. Like, wow. so I'm, I'm skipping ahead of myself, but it took them so long to kind of figure out the system for this that someone had to come up with it. Like, Whoa. because think about it this way, like you're gathering information from all over the world. And the idea is very simple. Get every book you can, mm-hmm. because that was the idea. Get every book, every scroll, every, inf- every no- piece of knowledge from all over the world and put mm-hmm. it in one place. Wow. 
And that's it. Wow. So no Dewey Decimal System, no coding. There's nothing here. It's just put it there. So there was kind of like a problem where you yeah, have well, they, to they can't use the Dewey Decimal System. They don't even have decimals yet. Exactly. So you have everything in the world at your disposal, or you know, to they can get at your disposal, mm-hmm. but you can't get too specific yet because there's no system in place to do so. So like, if you wanted to study law, you have to go find it because there's no real category or like catalog mm-hmm. to tell you. God, it, I mean, I'm imagining there had to be some equivalent to a librarian that would mm-hmm. escort you. Well, in the beginning, not really. It was kind of like a free for all. Like mm. they would invite, like the like Ptolemaic rulers would invite people in, scholars in particular from all over, kind of the Greek world and known world, to like study here, like yeah. a residency, if you will. Yeah. But it was actually um, Callimachus of Cyrene mm-hmm. who created this catalog, which oh. they called it the Pinex. But basically, he took it upon himself to categorize everything in the library and actually make it usable for people who are visiting and studying and doing whatever they wanted to come in and be like, oh, okay, here's the system. If you want to go study medicine, it's in the left-hand corner of the library. Or if you want to study law, it's up upstairs to the right, you know? So totally organized it all. And I think that made it so much better yeah. for everybody involved. Um, but yeah, in terms of size, I mean, this had to be massive. This was it took up a huge portion of the mm. um, rural district of the city. It's near the ocean or the sea. And... You know, this is this is like a gem of the city. This is yeah. really it's it's made for the purpose of information and storage, but also knowledge as like a flex. Right. Well, you put it you kind a... of you kind of answered my next question, but I want to go a little deeper oh. here. What? OK, I mean, you kind of also said it was kind of like a residency. This is a <laughs> yeah. time period where even being able to read is a flex, you know? Yes. Um, there are not many societies with high literacy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Egyptian, uh, you know, hieroglyphic alphabet that was, you know, notoriously difficult and you had to be able, you know, you, know, you had to be of some means to be able yeah. to read. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure for the Greeks as well, you know, you, you had mm-hmm. to be of a certain status. Um who was the serving, you know, because this is this is an interesting development of civilization where you have a public works building that, you know, it sounds like might be open to the elite, but is not just for promoting the glory of whoever is king. This sounds like right. um, a public resource, albeit a very um, exclusive public resource. Who is who is reading here? Who is studying here? Well, during this time, mm-hmm. specifically within Ptolemaic rule from 283 to basically before the invasion of Ro- the Romans, it's really for, I mean, kind of anybody. I mean, re- I, I think we have to kind of incorporate some bias, right? So like assuming that there is a class system still and there's clearly parts of the population that are illiterate and not really you know i think Mm -hmm. invited here Mm -hmm. but let's remove it for a second i mean like you're getting scholars from all over the greek world within colonized egypt and also egyptian scholars Mm -hmm. people from basically anywhere because this is a major port system so anyone that can sail here mm-hmm. was kind of invited in mm. it wasn't like exclusive but i think it was under the idea of it being like 
yeah, you can study here, but like this is Alexandria, you know, like this is the gem of Egypt. Like we are the place of knowledge. But yeah. you really had a lot of, I think, Greek scholars coming here to study and further their crafts because this is really like the place to go. This is where right. all the information is. Like if you want to study advanced mathematics and science, mm-hmm. you're not going to get that information anywhere else. Well, but it was well a in Alexandria. Greek- uh, a Greek Egyptian that figured out the circumference of the earth, was it not? Yes. I actually was going to bring that up ah. because they found it here. That's exactly what happened. They, they, his name is. If only we had a way to look up that information in a library. <laughs> uh, their name was Aristotanes. Ah. It was a scholar. That was in uh, uh, 235 BCE, actually discovered that the earth was round by measuring the circumference. It was only like a little bit off. Yeah, it, it it was pretty good, and it's insane yeah. <laughs> the story of how we figured it out. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too familiar with it, but I do you do you know how that happened? Um, I believe I could be wrong, but basically, it was um he figured it out by on the same day at the same time, same day of the year at the same time. Mm-hmm. measured uh the shadows of two obelisks that were oh, i think yeah. a couple hundred miles apart and right um you know if you you know they're greeks pythagorean theorem you know yeah. they can measure the they they know the uh the geometry there of how mm-hmm. uh far the shadow is cast how tall the obelisk is and if you, you know, just do a little bit of geometry, you can yeah. pretty much estimate the curvature of the Earth because <laughs> the obelisk that is more northern is going to have a shorter, sh- or, or sorry, is yeah. going to have a longer shadow because right. it is um, not facing the sun as directly as the obelisk pointing more towards the sun closer to the equator. True, yeah. Yeah. So the Interesting. all all this stuff is happening, you know, here yeah. in Egypt, in uh, you know, the the near east in uh, you know, up north in Greece. Uh, you know, these are you know, this is really foundational uh mm-hmm. stuff to western yeah. science. Well, it's crazy because you know, everybody kind of credits like Columbus with that one where oh, they discovered the earth was round, but like now well, you know, that's one of those things that always bugs me because Columbus, one, did not discover the Earth was round. Uh, but also people knew the Earth was round regardless of Columbus. And I don't even mean people yeah. like people within <laughs> Europe, like people. Yeah, I think it's our was that um was that kind of a meta myth started by I think um, by that, that had to have been something added later where people were like. Yes. Oh well, you know Columbus was proving that the Earth was round. You know when you know oh mm-hmm. as as you just said we knew that we knew that pr- yeah. hundreds of years prior to the birth of Jesus that yeah, the Earth literally. was round and uh, not even that the Earth was round that <laughs> humanity had some idea of how big it was. Yeah, I, I think that that might have been part of the guy who wrote Sleepy Hollows, like meta mythology that they uh. did. On Columbus, which is totally a different subject for for what we're talking about now. Yeah, but yeah. I think this is this is where we get into manipulation of information, which comes up quite soon. 
you know, even here, you're getting crazy advancements in technology that would have brought us light years into the future. Like, mm -hmm. Heron of Alexandria, who's another scholar, invents the steam engine. What? Thousands of years before it's made. Yeah, in the library. But James, James what? Wrong. Thank James what? No. For watching that pot. He saw the light at the end of the tunnel, Joe. Believe it or not, Zan, Starlight Express was a little off. Andrew? <laughs> Lloyd Webber? The thing to remember, too, though, is, like, it had to be reinvented mm -hmm. because all this information gets taken away, for lack of a better term, and just basically just blacklisted from mm. everything. I, I know earlier you mentioned... Um, that it was burned. I think that's one that's one of the famous things about it. One, yeah. it has all, you know, ancient uh mm -hmm. knowledge. Two was burned. Yeah. Well actually, you know what, we have to we have to mention something before that too, before I get into the sad the sad part of this Ooh. story. Oh, okay. But well, as I was as I was bringing up that it's a port city. Mm -hmm. So Alexandra being a port city, under Ptolemy the third, there's a rule put in place where mm -hmm. any boat that docks in the city has to turn over any scrolls, books, any information that they have to the library. Mm -hmm. And scholars would, would copy any of those texts, and then mm -hmm. they would give the owners the copy. They wouldn't uh -huh. give them the original. So in this Ooh. way, they could kind of, because this was their way of getting information, because how do you go about the grand task of getting all the information from all over the world? And you have the original sources, not the copies, which had to be a little exactly. annoying. You know somebody was a little annoyed. Y yeah, that, I'll get into They're that. They're like, they because spelled, that's annoying. spelled the thing wrong, but fucking told me. Okay. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, the, the, the spelling errors, or mm -hmm. not, not even spelling errors, but just mistakes that could have happened from giving copies back. And then now those are getting cycled mm -hmm. in, into all over because these people are traveling. And if you're a trader, you know, you're, you're meeting different people, you're sharing information. Like yeah. the library, it takes the one actual original copy. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, and they also sent out, like, uh, for lack of a better word, book scouts. <laughs> to go okay. and gather texts from everywhere. Like people would just go in ships, they pay them money, they go, they find books, they bring them back, and then they put them in the library. This way to grow it. So this, this thing right. is just growing okay. and growing and growing for years and centuries. Uh, so as I mentioned, fire, and this is a port city and a very, very important one. So as the library is, is and the growing fire, and the becomes- The fire was a complete accident, nobody's fault, right? Uh, <laughs> not exactly. Well, you see, Zan, there's this little thing happening a little bit north of Alexandria called the birth of the Roman Empire. Okay, so what? Wait, what year? What year are we at now? Well, let's fast forward a little bit to 48 BCE when Julius okay. Caesar's in power, just for the sake of not going over the Romulus and Remus story for the 80th time okay. that I'm sure everybody's heard. No, but um, so Julius Caesar comes to power and in 48 BCE invades Alexandria. And what he does is set all most of the ships in the harbor ablaze. Mm. And as I mentioned, that uh, the Library of Alexandria is built near the water in the Royal District. Part of it catches fire. And so the common myth is that the library caught fire and that's what burned it down. And we don't know anything because mm -hmm. it was all burned away. Mm -hmm. And that's also what I thought, too. And it, uh, But upon doing further research, it's actually only partially true. Hmm. So it's believed that part of 
the library, the library's collection was burned up. Mm-hmm. But be, because we have written sources by scholars dated years after the fire and the invasion, uh-huh. quoting the library and citing it as a source and a place that they were visiting, mm-hmm. we know that it was still in use. Hmm. Okay, so maybe it was like a partial burn. That's very interesting. It, yeah, well, exactly. It's it's It was most likely a partial burn, but what happens is, because and, and, the downfall and the eventual you know, destruction of the library does happen. It's just not as physical as people think it to be. Oh. As I mentioned, the Romans conquer Alexandria and, you know, under the Roman rule, they pretty much are just, you do what the Romans say, but trade flourishes mm-hmm. as they conquer all of Europe and parts of Africa and the Middle East. Alexandria goes through multiple different rulers, leaders, and regimes, including Roman Christian and eventually Muslim rule. And under each of these, they're pretty much all dictatorships until a bit later. Mm -hmm. And one thing that they don't really like is information, and in particular, information that questions things. Mm. And so what you start to see is a push to kind of remove the library as a popular and important thing. So what started out as, you know, Alexander's dream of the empire of knowledge is now an empire of literally the opposite hmm. and it just keeps getting kind of worse i mean the romans were pretty strict about it but they still let people go in well the romans at least had the romans had public education to some yeah. extent and the romans i wouldn't say were <laughs> I, I i can't i can't say this without you know some big exceptions but the romans were not necessarily <laughs> anti-intellectual no you know they were they would be more anti um Anti anti establishment. Like don't go against <laughs> They are don't go against they us are, Well yeah, fine. when you are the establishment of yeah. the uh the entire Mediterranean Sea. Yeah. But that you could argue that they were they were also trying to archive things and, and help the betterment of society. Yeah. Just in a mean well, the, way. The Romans but... had, you know, a huge reverence for anything greek or anything um, yeah and anything that you know could be tied to ancient greece absolutely when i was in latin class one of the things that we uh did was translate the letters of pliny the younger and there's this one part where he's just talking about how great this antique uh greek vase he has is you know Mm. just talking about the quality of the uh of the of the uh, vase so i mean that that's very interesting to hear that like okay so it partially it's partially destroyed but still in use for a bit but then it just sort of kind of gets watered down and eventually just kind of eroded away as an institution it sounds like just is sort of more more more, it's more Mm -hmm. neglected over time no it's more taught to not use it Hmm. it's like it becomes something that's a threat. So instead of burning it down, they just kill anybody who uses it. Then that would be a little later. Well, like, wait, is this is this under Christian rule? Is this under Ottoman rule? Because, like, I, I again, I always think of the Ottomans as very, like, you know, science-minded. Yeah, I mean, so before Ottoman rule, before others, it's under Christian rule after, you know, the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And here things get a little dicey because uh, antiquity is not something that they uh, liked. 
are these, know, are these, besides are Christ. these Coptic Christians? Um, I'm not entirely sure. Okay. I, I, I know it is now. I'm just, but... as, I'm just assuming because they're Christians in Egypt. Yeah, I mean, this would have been like, because like in four, to give a kind of a very specific example, in, in 415 CE, you have this, this mathematician known as Habatia, mm -hmm. who actually she ran a school in Alexandria and because of like her father being a mathematician as well, and then her learning the craft and the, the love and passion for it is, right. is leading a school and trying to kind of further mm -hmm. mathematics. But in order to do so, wants to kind of learn from the people who already figured it out mm -hmm. and were advancing in that. Uh, and all that information is in the library. And so like kind of getting permission to do so under Christian rule, going into the library and studying, but ended up studying lots of ancient Greek texts and getting some, I guess, controversial ideas mm. and was murdered for it. God. So, and then after this, you're starting to see the library and all the information inside of it be considered blasphemous. So it starts getting against, censored. Yes. Mm. So really the downfall is censorship, wow. not even negligence. Because I, I think it's it's censored and then you're starting to kind of neglect it because of that. Because as you, you know, have generations come in and they're told that this is unimportant and then people just forget. And right. then what happens? Well, it, it I mean, of... if you want to make it contemporary, you could maybe look at the slow destruction of the United States Postal Service where you have an administration deliberately uh you know not not only trying to privatize every government institution yeah but you know deliberately trying to sabotage uh something to make it so inefficient that people will not put up a fight once it is uh eliminated yeah exactly you're getting that kind of similarity uh to current day and i think that's why i was so intrigued by your question to bring it back to that mm -hmm. um um these different histories and things that were kind of coming about with and and also i think i i know you pointed out the um in the beginning this call to you know if we still had all the knowledge and it didn't go away we'd be in the renaissance earlier and it would have kind of like you know mm -hmm. forwarded us into the future we probably wouldn't have been in the dark ages mm -hmm. and it's it's such an interesting question and i think that's kind of what the sad story of the library shows is like one how valuable information is and how mm -hmm. important it is especially now that we live in an age where information is so easily accessible yeah but also how easily manipulated it can be too mm -hmm. also bringing about the question of where do you store everything right. where where is it safe to put information and store it for everybody to use without it getting manipulated changed censored Mm -hmm. and i guess abused to right. a certain extent because you know this was a this was somewhere where all this information was available to kind of everybody and especially scholars who were furthering knowledge in this pursuit of technological advancements mm -hmm. and then it's just gone right and clearly not within you know 2 years way way more than that and you have to relearn everything. James Watt has to reinvent the steam engine. Right. So we have it now. And, you know, we could have known, what we, we could have known about evolution sooner. We could have. Exactly. You know, exactly. Exactly. 
We could we could have known, you know, probably more things about physics and yeah, you know, I mean, who who knows? Like, there could have been, you know, the descriptions of entire societies and peoples that you know no longer exist today. That you know, their (laughs) their information was in that library. Yeah, I mean, it's it's truly sad to think about, and you know that Mm -hmm. it's just sort of um, that it's just sort of dashed out of history and destroyed yeah um yeah it it does it does make you think about uh a lot of different things um (laughs) starting with you know what when you're you know taking over a society as the romans are you know what is valuable within that society Um, exactly yeah and what what are you willing to preserve you know, it's it's in, there's so many interesting parallels you could pull to like the Renaissance, where there were a lot of Greco-Roman texts that were cherished, and there were a lot that you know were very sinful to read. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm also imagining, you know, even though the Ottomans do make, you know, during the Islamic Golden Age, make so many advancements in um, in mathematics. You know, we get uh, our newfangled uh, Arabic number system from them, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is, is a huge leap forward. You know, without that stuff, the uh, the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution as we know it doesn't happen. Isaac Newton, you know, is, is working off of that stuff. Yeah. The interesting thing I wonder, though, too, is, like, the Ottomans were not without their own version of censorship uh right you know where they did you know plaster over a lot of things once they took over uh constantinople where you know they kind Mm -hmm. of wanted to erase the uh byzantine-ness of it yeah and incorporate it into the ottoman empire no for sure it's a lot of I get it's an interesting question about like what different cultures will do with information and whether it be to kind of save it mm-hmm. and utilize it for different things or to pave over it and change and right and i I think everybody's guilty of it, you know, mm-hmm. I think all cultures are guilty of doing that in some way or form, but not always as like aggressive and just kind of evil to a certain extent yeah. not to say that any of these are but i think like you know i i just i don't know it's it's to me there's something kind of horrifying about murdering for to like keep information closed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it's dangerous and i don't know it just speaks volumes it does it does and uh it actually does kind of bring us to um as fantastic as uh this uh, reconstruction of the library is I do have another mm-hmm. uh, reconstruction I would like to show wow. you. This one's a little bit smaller. Uh, if you'll follow me through here, I uh, actually oh, yeah, had them install this door into the library. Uh, oh, you know, fabulous. <laughs> you'll notice uh, it uh, looks much more uh, like it was made in the early 20th century rather than, you know, uh, BC times. Yeah, I kind of thrown off my aesthetic here, but you know what? I think that's okay. Yeah, you it's don't nice you don't mind that I installed this in the middle of your exhibit? 
I mean, I don't really have a choice, so. <laughs> All right. Well, if you'll follow me through here, um, I have this dinosaur skeleton to show you. Another dinosaur oh. skeleton. It seems to be a reoccurring <laughs> thing that I show. Um, but uh, this is uh, Spinosaurus. Uh, and you'll notice it doesn't look very complete. No, it doesn't. No, and huh. um, even these fragments of it are no longer with us. They were, um, oh. and I'll tell you a little bit about them, but really, Please. you can't talk, I don't think you can or should talk about Spinosaurus without talking about Ernst Stromer von Reichenbach. Well, that's a name. Yeah, and that's not <laughs> even his full name. Uh, what? <laughs> Ernst Stromer was a uh, German paleontologist born in 1871. Ernst Stromer would kind of, you know, have been his kind of given name. Uh, sure. Von Reichenbach, he, um, he held, uh, within Germany, he held what kind of was the equivalency of, uh, his title was uh, basically Baron. Oh, wow. He was, you know, old uh, German aristocrat stock hmm. like his ancestors were all architects and doctors and scientists and lawyers like you know just came from this long line of kind of uh bavarian prussian uh intelligentsia you know okay his father was the mayor of nuremberg you know he this wow. is this is a well-to-do family um yeah but then I have to wonder though, you're the you're in politics and your son wants to study dinosaurs. I mean this this was, you know <laughs> this was a different time, you know. Sure. But also like I do wonder if there was an eye roll, you know, there on his dad's part. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe he was supportive. Yeah. So in nineteen ten he goes on uh, a an expedition to of all places Egypt and he arrives oh. in Alexandria. Um oh. yeah, before uh getting to Cairo and then um you know going out into the desert to a, a little known area of the desert. He had to um one one thing about Ernst Stromer, uh from what uh I've uh, been able to gather is he was very by the books this was okay he's described as kind of frail hmm. and you know bookish uh kind of like like he wasn't very tough like he was kind of a nerd yeah oh the interesting thing though is he braves some of the most inhospitable conditions on earth to go hunting for wow. dinosaurs um Jeez. but he he you know does everything he's supposed to do first he consults other renowned egyptologists and meets with them before he goes out on the expedition he meets uh explorers um you know he uh you know enlists local help uh as uh labor for uh the expedition um and they go out and um they were also having just difficulty getting permits to dig because of tensions between Germany and Britain. Um, like, oh, wow. everything is difficult. They went through so many obstacles of paperwork just to get out in the desert to dig. So, so like, he arrives in Egypt in 1910. He does not arrive at the site he will dig at until January of 1911. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez. So, 
They arrive at the site, and he doesn't find very much after all that. He finds a couple of mammal bones, and he thinks, okay, well, this must be Eocene in age, because Mm. there's mammals. Um, At this point, scientists have kind of been able to differentiate all of the different rock layers. Right. You know, there's things called index fossils, where, you know, if you see... The fo- this particular type of fossil, you know you are in this layer of rock. What they don't okay. know yet, uh, quite precisely, is how old those different layers are. Yeah. And, like, they don't know how much time uh, separates the, uh, the age of mammals, the, the Cenozoic. They don't know, and, and, you know, contemporary times how much is between that and the age of the dinosaurs you know he finds like yeah he's finding these little mammal bones he's finding a shark vertebrae and then um he finds dinosaurs he basically stumbles into a uh a very uh uh, fossil rich uh layer with lots of cretaceous era dinosaurs and you know it's even it's even shocking for them at the time because they find very large predatory dinosaurs and um hmm. it's it's bizarre it's even i think called stromer's riddle where more predatory dinosaurs are found than herbivorous dinosaurs whoa which you know if you think about food chains does not make sense no so th- they're they're in an area of completely unexplored science this is you know, the time period when paleontology is well known enough that there's people doing it all over the world, but it truly is like the Wild West cowboy era of paleontology, oh, you know? You've got like... Like the Indiana Jones. Well, you know, the guy, uh, you know, th- this is not, uh, this is kind of hearsay, but the guy mm-hmm. that, you know, was kind of the real life Indiana Jones, Roy Chapman Andrews, you know, not too much later is going to be digging in uh, the Gobi Desert, you know, and he's like, oh, this, wow, this rootin' tootin' Wisconsinite, uh, <laughs> you know, like Indiana Jones, he's from the Midwest, he wears a hat, he's like a, he's like a Boy Scout on steroids, you know, he, oh, he walks around digging for dinosaurs with his revolver, fending off the dig site from Mongolian bandits, you know? Jeez. Yeah, you know, Barnum Brown is out in the American West digging in, like, a full-length fur coat. Oh, my God. The, uh, the Bone Wars are happening. Uh, or Actually, the Bone Wars happened, I think, a little earlier uh, between oh. um, the paleontologists Marsh and Cope, where they would sabotage each other's dig sites and blow stuff up. Jeez. Like, oh, my God. This was, <laughs> like, I cannot impress upon you enough that, like, this was... This was an era of paleontology to behold. That sounds You know, like it. this kind of uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, just messy, stupid. You know, like, this yeah. is... This is the boys will be boys era of paleontology. Oh, God. <laughs> you know? Um, wow. So anyways, 
they find all of these uh, animals, all these dinosaurs, and uh, they decide, okay, we're going to ship these back to Germany, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. So they go back to Germany. Um, remember how I said they fa- they arrived at the site in 1911? Yeah. So guess what? There's more paperwork problems. The fossils oh, do not no. arrive in Germany, in Munich, until 1922. What? Yes. So some of these fossils have been sitting in crates for 11 years. Oh my god. Yeah, like, so much crazy stuff happens in the meantime. Uh, um, You know, one of Ernst Stromer's friends that, like, was supposed to come with him on the expedition, you know, uh, uh, comes down with some strange disease, probably malaria. Jesus. Um, and, you know, a lot of people get sick because they, you know, went to Egypt and, you know, mm. modern hygiene isn't a thing just yet. Uh, the, you know, and they're all traveling and getting exposed to all sorts of stuff. Um, so eventually he does get them back. And in the thirties, he actually publishes descriptions of them, including this right here, Spinosaurus, oh. which he has mounted on the wall. Spinosaurus, you know, very, uh, characteristic of, of this the characteristics of this dinosaur are this very crocodilian shaped jaw you know very yeah. very long kind of bulbous at the end with long uh conical teeth you know you hmm. could you right. know it, it is comparable to uh i think sort of a crocodilian jaw okay and uh but what really sets it apart you know as a theropod dinosaur is it has this enormous sail running down its back right yeah right. these these oh. big flat um processes uh you know basically coming out of the dorsal side of the uh vertebrae and you know there's you know not th- this is a time where you know there's there's an increase in you know the types of dinosaurs being found you know more and more information is being collected but this is not something that they've particularly encountered before. And this is yeah. also, you know, um, th- this, is, this is a time in academia where a lot of stuff could become incredibly uh, regional, you know? Uh-huh. That, that's kind of the other thing that we think about, you know, when we, when we think about the, the contemporary era where a lot of information is available to us, like prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a lot of science in paleontology, like in other sciences, that were not getting exchanged between the West and the East. Like the mm. the Soviet paleontologists were not necessarily at liberty to share all information with, uh, you know, uh, their uh, counterparts elsewhere. Right. But, you know, Russian paleontologists made a lot of really important discoveries. Um, yeah. Yeah. Huh. So anyways, so uh, Ernst, I can call him Ernst, I think. Yeah. So he's publishing descriptions <laughs> in the 1930s. Uh-huh. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait, he's in Germany in the 1930s. Just read my mind. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm getting nervous over here. I'm getting a little, little anxious. Uh-huh. Well, uh, you can breathe easy. Ernst was 
uh, famous for his distaste of Nazis. Oh, thank God. Okay. Yes. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, the discoverer of Spinosaurus was quite anti-Nazi. Oh. And uh, was kind of as outspoken as you could be back then. Yeah. He did not sever ties with his Jewish colleagues. Um, you know, he would not kowtow to what they wanted um, in, in academia. And this is, this is sort of a, uh, an interesting thing within Nazi Germany where they cannot punish him because he is an aristocrat from a very old, well-to-do family, as I mentioned. Right, right. Oh. They cannot punish him. So they instead mm. punish his three sons. He has uh, oh. three sons, Ullman, Wolfgang, and Gerhardt. Whoa. Yeah. He, you know, just some very German names. Yeah. <laughs> they are all soldiers. Okay. Um, and so they get sent to the front. Oh, no. Two of them die, <sighs> and one of them is assumed dead. Uh, because he is captured by the Soviets. Oh my god. So he is, they, they are trying to bury him. Like, yeah. this is, uh, you know, the Nazi project of, uh, you know, if you can't outright kill somebody, we're going to bury their history. We're going to rewrite history with our history. Yeah. And this brings up the Nazi paleontologist Carl Berlin. Hmm. And this has been such a disturbing thing to think about for me. <laughs> oh, no. Um, Nervous. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, but it, it's... I don't even entirely know how to feel about this. But basically, so the person in charge of the collection at the uh, museum in Munich where these fossils are being stored is a paleontologist. Yeah, Carl. Okay. Carl with a K. I don't oh. know why. I just think that's important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, probably an incel. Oof. Yeah. I mean, probably. you know, Ernst is Ernst is there. He's you know he's you know he's kind of he's kind of nerdy. He's got his glasses. He's you know well-meaning. Carl, just fucking Carl. Ugh. Um, Carl. Ugh. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, he was a young, very outspoken Nazi. Oh, great, Carl. Carl, that kills exactly. people. <laughs> like actually. Yeah, literally. Yeah, but this made me actually kind of want to research a little bit more. Like, what? What do you believe in? If you are a Nazi paleontologist, it is so. Could you imagine? Wake you wake up. Mm -hmm. It's Nazi Germany, right? You get dressed. You uh, -huh. uh, you know, you're you're like Donald Duck in that cartoon. You hail Hitler <laughs> as you're getting as you're getting dressed in the morning. Right, you go right. to work, but you're not you know going. You're not going to work in a factory, you know, or like some bureaucratic yeah. office, you know? You're going right. to study dinosaurs in huh. the middle of World War II. Uh, it's a weird... It, tell, me, tell me that's not a weird picture. Like, 
what like i mean i know now a lot of crazy stuff is going on and you're just expected to go to your job but for some reason for some reason i don't know why it's very it's just a weird thought to me and i can't entirely articulate it just i just like okay like Wasn't not not like... even like as a crazy experiment where like they're like no. the Führer wants us to clone dinosaurs for uh, super soldiers. <laughs> what movie was that where they had to ride <laughs> one of the dinosaurs? That Kung Fury? Uh no, that does not happen. Did that I make that does up? Does not happen in Kung Fury. No, it's those really really weird Iron Sky movies. Iron Sky. That's. Oh, you never heard about that? I've never heard of Iron Sky. What oh, it's that? the one where they had the Nazis on the moon. Nazis on moon Nazis? Moon Nazis. They oh. made a movie about it, and then they made a second one, and I remember the trailer has Hitler on a dinosaur, and I'm very uncomfortable with that image. Yeah, yes. yeah. So... Anyway. <laughs> I mean, aside from, like, you know, it, it's bordering on comical, you know? Yeah. Because at first, my first thought was, like, how can you... Like, I, I get institutional racism, okay? Like, I understand, uh -huh. like, you know, we, even if you have no bad intentions, like, the way that we've redlined districts and set up, like, our healthcare right. system is almost, in some cases, deliberately disadvantageous to yes. certain people. Mm -hmm. I don't get how you can like be sitting there studying like a fossil clam and also be racist at the same time, you know? Yeah. Like, it, it, like how, how do you write, how do you write a racist scientific paper about a clam, you know, like some fossil clam that yeah. you found in the desert, which, you know, the, the, the answer to all of this is, you know, that type of bias does not necessarily creep into that. Like, you know. Right. As, like, there's still, like, people that wear the Nazi uniform and are down with the ideology, but are still like, hey, you know, we gotta build that bridge. Let's build that bridge. You know? Yeah, the, true. Yeah, or like, we gotta pour some asphalt today, but this is very specifically racist asphalt. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Why can't we have white asphalt? <laughs> Why does the asphalt... <laughs> oh, God. Uh, it's ridiculous, but someone definitely thought it. Yeah. I The thing I, I'm trying to wrap my head around is, like, isn't there more important things to do? Not to diss on dinosaurs, but, like, if you're in the middle of a war, and, like, what, what time is this? The, what is this happening? The, this is in the 40s. Like when in the forties? Because that matters. Like but early or late? Uh, early forties. Okay, so I guess they're not really in Germany yet. The Allies haven't invaded Germany yet, so like maybe it's fine. But I just feel like there's like other priorities. Well, you know, yeah, and I mean, I mean the the thing is, like, you always wonder within any violent period of history. Mm-hmm you wonder you wonder what it's like for the intellectuals of that place yeah you know because you uh you know because like the french revolution was famously violent but you know a lot of people got away true and you know we got a lot of different philosophers and thinkers out of that same with the russian revolution yeah very true very true 
but the, the the thing about you know him being a Nazi and being a paleontologist. So what I did not realize until uh, recently, uh, an article I read was that, uh, and I don't know why this should be any big shock, but surprisingly, Germany was kind of late to uh, you know uh, science in, in this realm in terms of evolution. Huh. <laughs> Because yeah, <laughs> uh, specifically the Nazis, I should say, specifically right, the Nazis, right, right. because there were you know lots of famous naturalist, uh, you know biological science minded Germans, but like surprisingly, Nazis were late adopters of evolution, and they were into Lamarckism before they were into Darwinism. I, are are you familiar with Lamarckism? I'm not. So. You know, Darwin, it's survival of the fittest, that being most fit to the niche. You have a finch arrives from the mainland on an island, and its descendants will be selected for based on that new food source on the island, right? Right, right. The, the, yeah. the baby bird born with the random mutant beak that is best able to eat the seeds in the new environment will be selected for that offspring will have more offspring and this evolution will take place um because those that trait will continue to um you know produce more uh a more successful uh species in that ecological niche Mm -hmm. prior to darwin people were not wholly ignorant that some animals are physiologically more similar to other animals you know like we had carl linnaeus you know, Carlos Linnaeus. Mm. You know, old old timey people that were just way too into the Roman Empire <laughs> were just Roman weebs. You know. Oh man. Anyway, <laughs> you know Richard Owen, who actually coined the term dinosaur in the eighteen hundreds. You know, famous British naturalist. He he, descri- he described the moa. You know. Oh wow. But was anti Darwin. You know, he was a proponent of this other system, which kind of could allow for creationism. That it still Mm. left the door open for the Bible. Um, So Lamarck says, well, the ancestor of the giraffe has a, it seems, has a short neck. So... The, the ancestor of the giraffe must have been stretching its neck, trying to reach the leaves at the top of the tree. And so because it was always stretching and trying, the, its offspring would have longer necks he, as, uh, until it was long enough to reach the tops of the trees. And this is, you know, a po- you can see why people kind of would think that. I mean... People have been breeding dogs and cows and goats and cats at this point for millennia. They have some idea that, you know, animals can change and their offspring can sort of tend towards something, right? Right, right. But this, this is not at all how, you know, natural selection happens. You know, Lamarck is wrong. But the reason why this kind of was more appealing to uh, to Germans was, you know, it 
fit in with their mythological romantic idea of Germany and what they were meant to do. Because if you were really into Nazism, it meant that you also believed in a bunch of other really goofy, stupid shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like... If That's if you were true. into Nazism and you're explaining to someone, okay, we hate the we hate uh the the non Aryans, yeah, we hate the non Aryan people, so the Slavs, the Poles, the uh, the Anglo Saxons, the Celts, uh, the Spaniards, the Italians, everybody, all those people, they gotta go. And you're like, okay, and we also hate the Jews, okay. And we also mm. hate, you know, uh, non-Europeans, except for the Japanese. Okay, so <laughs> why why do you why do you uh, hate uh, why do you hate all these people? Well, they're mud people. Uh, and you're like, what? And you're like, well, you see, at the beginning of creation, there were these God made these uh, uh, unshape uh, unshapely beings out of mud before He made humans, and then. You know, then then the, the, the then the Jews, but the Jews were also there and the Jews were evil and were like the descendants of the serpent and the, the Israelites are actually uh Scandinavian northern Europeans and Germans and and but we're Germans, but we're actually Aryans, even though we're uh, technically uh, not. And Germany has only existed for a couple of decades. And uh, 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 and and yeah, it's all the Jews fault. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I see what you're saying. Um, it's very wrong, but, you know, good one. But, like, okay, you... <laughs> this is you, insane. In order to believe in what they viewed as... Because the Germans wanted it both ways. They... Yeah. Germany had a history of being on the cutting edge of so much science and philosophy. And, right. And literature. But then that was... The, those were the people that they went after, you know? Yeah. All of the cutting-edge art that and music that all came out of germany you know they wanted to be proud of their german heritage but also all of those people were in a similar way to the library of alexandria you know it it Mm -hmm. went from a point of pride to oh we got to get rid of anything that makes people think too hard about this because the second you think about it for too long you start apart yeah you see how it falls apart so um they uh are but eventually thanks thanks to Karl uh Berlin they do start to catch on to evolution but they believe in orthogenic evolution so ortho okay. meaning straight they believe in the you know now very discredited idea that life yes life evolves but it is te- mm-hmm. it is um, trying to progress towards some sort of goal, which is not at all how uh, evolution works. You know, there's right, right. you know the 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 first reptiles to evolve wings were not doing it thinking, okay, well my arms are a little long now, but one day my descendants will be birds, and they'll be able to fly. Like there's no, <sighs> you know the the. Uh, Tiktaalik did not crawl out of the ocean thinking right. one day my descendants will walk on the moon. Oh my god. You know, the this is not ev- evolution is happening in response to stimulus and mm-hmm. you know, 
their their idea was life had been tending towards life had always meant to evolve humanity and then humanity was meant to evolve even further and that was the aryans they had it in their heads that we are the greatest civilization that the earth has yet seen so in order for progress to continue we must wipe out everyone else wow so you know took a very wrong lesson from darwin and uh and and just sort of went forward with this yeah jesus christ (laughs) and committed so many atrocities along the way yeah so but this was a very like capital r romantic ideal of germany that they could fit Mm -hmm. into their own philosophy which is i guess i guess sort of the the answer to my my question as to how you could have a nazi paleontologist was well this was how you know yeah so uh stromer is talking to carl and is like hey carl you nazi fuckface uh no, he probably didn't say it like that. Carl, you Nazi fuckface. Ah, uh, there it is. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how he would have said it. You know. <laughs> um. So, anyways, so Stromer says, "Hey, the museum is right next to the Nazi headquarters in Munich. Do you think we should move? Don't you think we should move? Maybe all of these specimens, many of which there are no copies of, shouldn't we move these somewhere else?" And they say no. Of course they do. And then in 1944, the British Royal Air Force uh, bombs Munich and bombs uh, the museum, destroying all of the specimens inside, many of which were the holotype or type specimens, the specimens by which the entire species is defined. You know, all of the original material is destroyed. We have some drawings some of the papers that were published and a couple of photographs and otherwise all of this is destroyed there that original spinosaurus specimen was uh blown up with the rest of the building oh my god that's (laughs) yeah that's um yeah a lot yeah and you know it's See, I always assume the Library of Alexandria, you know, it just got burnt down because they're like, ooh, what what secrets of society are in there? And then Caesar rolls up and he like opens one of the scrolls and it's all like hentai. And he's like, burn it down. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, we'll never know. Well, it could have been. I mean, what if what if this is all propaganda to make us think that the Library of Alexandria was so smart, but it was just all filled with like drawings of tentacle porn and then we had to reinvent it Ugh, you know hey hey, history repeats itself you know we got there we got there but you know the the, all this aside (laughs) whatever whatever we were just talking about aside there's (laughs) quite a bit of parallel to you know this this issue of the library and i think in some part too the museum of when you have all of these things in one place what does that kind of open you up to? Exactly. And that's why it makes me very nervous. You know who was right? Uh, the owl in Avatar The Last Airbender who buried <laughs> the library. Maybe that's what buried we have to library. do. Bury the library. The giant owl. Bury the library with the giant. Yes, exactly. 
in those words. Yeah. No, but like that's talk about the negligence of mm-hmm. we're in the middle of a war. Germany's getting invaded. We're losing. Maybe yeah. we should move everything. Nah, we're gonna succeed. Well, we're yeah, because like I mean, like, bro. to some extent, the war was pretty much over as soon as yeah. you know the the Americans got involved. Like, there's no way Germany was going to produce enough steel and gas no. at, at the same rate the Americans would. You know, but you know, like some the Germans that knew what was up, you know, like stored all the famous collectible art in like salt mines yeah, and stuff sure. and like you know like they they disassembled the amber room you know yeah and like you know they they had some idea that things might not keep going the way that they had hoped. right right so, so you know you have to wonder as to how much value they also saw in the dinosaurs you know like, did they, Yeah. how much did, you know, the elite Nazis care about that? Because I feel like they probably would have cared more about the art, to be honest. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, this is just sense. kind of speculating, but I am guessing they did not covet them in the same way that, you know, they were mm-hmm. like, you know, like trying to <laughs> sneak off with the Ghent altarpiece. Yeah, very true. I mean... No, that's a good point, too, and it, it does kind of, I think, match up with Nazi ideology at the time, mm-hmm. especially, like, man over anything else. But, yeah, I think that's my existential fear always about physical things, mm-hmm. right? The reason I love Digital archives so much is it's available to pretty much everyone and it's always there Mm -hmm. but the thing no one thinks about is everything's still physical in a server bed yeah like everything still has to exist in a physical you know yeah but this this brings up i think you know sort of the problem with maybe it's not a problem but let's call it a problem because i can't think of another word let's talk about you know with with like a lot of shared knowledge with um you know yeah. cultural knowledge that everyone kind of knows you know there's things that farmers and indigenous people and mm-hmm. just people that have more of a connection to rural life there's a lot of intuitive knowledge and science that they just know yeah. by yeah. growing stuff you know Like, Mm -hmm. Darwin got so much of his information just by, you know, hanging out at, like, the Pigeon Fanciers Club. Like, people Mm -hmm. that just spent all their time with pigeons and knew about pigeon uh, racing and breeding. You know, hanging out at kennel clubs. Like, people that under, you know, people that spent time with that. You know, farmers and, and animal enthusiasts. Like you know, there is something to be said for that versus, like, kind of, um, are kind of, this this is going to, you know, because I know academics are not all like this, but, you know, sort of the the academic class that we think of, that Mm -hmm. there is, you know, a class of people that go to school to become critics and tastemakers and theorists and that 
we leave the heavy intellectual lifting to them. This is, you know, I'm speaking in very broad strokes here. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But, you know, there's, if we want to like go even further back than the Library of Alexandria, there's the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. Are you familiar? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, I am. But we can, yeah. We can kind of I mean, what, what, what do you, what do you know? What's kind of your impression of it? I mean, it's been a while, but basically trying to build the tower to God, right? If I remember correctly, yeah. Um, and it, but it's it's meant as a story meant to explain why people speak different languages, you know? Because if you're assuming all of humanity was created, why do we all speak different languages oh, and live in different places? The the biblical story, if any of our uh, guests are not familiar, just you know the 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 people of Babel are trying to build a tower to God on a hill and um, they try to get uh, closer to God but um, by the time they come back down it's taken them so long to build it that uh, the people down at the bottom have changed. Oh wow. And you know this is like I said this is meant you know to kind of explain why there are different um, languages on earth and right. it was also it was it was also kind of an interesting like anti-establishment uh piece in the bible as well because it, there's hmm. speculation that babel was meant to uh signify babylon and the the fall of mm. the uh of the mesopotamian civilizations um that the tower would what what would they had in mind like a tower at babel they were picturing a ziggurat. Oh, interesting. Yeah, a a Mesopotamian step pyramid. Huh. So, the the takeaway that I've always had with it, and I can't know if you know the ancient writers had this in mind, but the interpretation that I always got that seems to be this this feeling that any civilization that has gotten to a point of having and and an intellectual elite and that has happened multiple times across millennia like in multiple places sure. on earth you have the regular folks and you have the intellectual elite people that are not necessarily royalty but people who are the thinkers and the philosophers right right and i wonder if there's another interpretation of this where you look at when you study something so intently and you have to develop all of your own terms for it you come up with all of your ways to define something and and to explain it in uh, a scientific way and then you turn around to share your discoveries and you're speaking a different language mm. than the people that you are trying to study on the behalf of. And I wonder if that has, if that happened enough in ancient times that it is preserved in that story as well, because I feel like that is something that we also run into. I mean, you could look at that with contemporary art where yeah. contemporary artists and philosophers really dive into a lot of the granular subtle details of contemporary life and you know 
people that are making important art right now are making it about all of us, you know? Nobody right, makes yeah. art about God or kings and queens anymore, you know? People, they're making art about us, but then, you know, you bring people into a contemporary art gallery and they don't understand <laughs> it. And it's intellectual elitism. And it's a, it's a question of if, it, if it's even for them. Who is this for? Exactly. That's a really good point about the Tower of Babel. And yeah. also an interesting thing of coming, coming back and speaking a different language, but also in a way that means speaking a technical language. Exactly. That, that's very fascinating. That's, that's kind I've I've had, I don't know. I, I've been trying to find if any other, I, I've been trying to find like something else to support this idea. I mean, I'm sure I could not have been the first person to come up <laughs> with that takeaway. But Fair. Uh, as of yet, I have not found that a text that goes into that uh, mm -hmm. in quite the way that I would want. Sure. But it's just it's just sort of been a thought I've had about. Yeah. Anytime you have any of these things that we, we picture as a structure, you know, whether it be a museum right, right. or a library, we picture a structure that is compiling human effort and knowledge to achieve some sort of goal. Um, that goal, I think, still being subject to the biases of whoever is building it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting to think in terms of the con the context of the Library of Alexandria too. Like, I, I'm going to go out on a limb because I have not researched it that far in this case or in this subject. But like, it's possible that there was that separation too. Mm -hmm of intellectuals and philosophers and, and yeah. scholars and everybody else and then just regular people the you know yeah because there's an intuitive history knowledge technique and farming and weaving and, and skills that's yeah. not easily translatable mm -hmm. via like just writing it down yeah. and making books on it i mean maybe more so now but definitely not at the time and like that's actually quite di dividing mm -hmm. you think about it and well, yeah, like someone to be like, I don't know, it's ancient Egypt or something like someone like saying, oh, I read a book, how to make papyrus. And it's like, oh, well, I had to, you know, be in an apprenticeship to learn how to make papyrus and then learn Literally. to write on it, you know? Exactly, exactly. Like, I think a big takeaway from these events, too, is possibly that, like, these separations can also be downfalls, too, mm -hmm. and lead to issues. And like I don't know, I definitely it's something that's coming up a lot with me in, in studying contemporary art and right. being a contemporary artist. It's like it's frustrating because I think now as I've researched further, as I'm getting better with my own practice and mm -hmm. knowledge within that, you can start to see where some of the bullshit is and where some yeah. of the like truth yeah. is. And like, listen, there's credit to be given for those who are very intellectually adept and are doing some crazy, crazy like mm -hmm. contemporary works that require tons of reading. Right. But personally, I don't really love the idea of having to go to a museum and then read an entire novel so you understand something. I think, and and this is just an opinion because critics mm -hmm. will one hundred percent disagree with me. But I think that's a separating line because not everybody has that background knowledge. Yeah. So for me, I'd much rather have something that's universal that everybody can kind of look at than 
something that's so specifically locked. And like, I wonder if in the Library of Alexandria, that was the case to some degree where things were language locked and barriered. And, mm. and you know, because if something's coming from like India, you'd have to have somebody that can translate that. Right, yeah. Into the spoken language. And that's not always going to happen. And then even later, when the library is half burned and left to kind of fall apart, there has to be people that go in there and translate everything that they want to know. So you're going to have to mm -hmm. learn ancient Greek, even though it's probably not the vernacular language at the time, to read everything. Well, you know, that was that was a barrier for a very long time, just the language to use. Like, you know, the the yeah. for, for science for a for a while, you know, the lingua franca was uh, was Latin. And, yeah. you know, the, the idea itself is not bad. They're like, OK, let's pick a no. dead language that nobody is actively speaking. So we know it's not going to change. So let's right. use Latin uh, as as the uh, the right as what we write about science mm -hmm. and theory in. And, yeah. you know, we're going to use Latin to name all the species and stuff. Well, you know, it set up its own elitism as like, all right, well, now you have yeah. to know Latin and archaic Greek to understand all of the yeah. scientific <laughs> words that we've come up with. Yeah. And I mean, like, look, in, in concept and in theory, it's a good idea because yeah. I think it keeps everything concise. But you yeah. do have that's a hurdle. to Well, cross. like, I'll I'll argue again. I could argue either of these points that we're making. Um, <laughs> in, in different moments where. For sure. I really do value the, the iron ear of the critic, you know, yes. because I, I can't really be anti-institution, anti, you know, academic and scholarly research when, you know, we, we, can, we can sit here and talk about all the times <laughs> that old time or, and even contemporary scientists were wrong. You know, right. We can sit here with our just the benefit of knowing now what we know now that, oh, uh, you know, that men and women do not have <laughs> a, a different number of ribs or right. that. Uh, I mean, people used to believe in a lot of different weird stuff like mm -hmm. and, and it and it took us a while to undo all of that. but it was better science that got rid of bad science. True. Yeah. And, you know, all of these terms that we now use to, you know, rightfully criticize our own culture, all of this stuff comes out of academic study, you know? Yeah. You know, that we can have a feminist lens on history to see you know what histories of women were erased what queer yep. histories were erased what non-white histories were erased but you know that criticism is still coming from within academia so i will still i think yeah. end up on the side that supports criticality and supports academic research because i think there should be people that can study ourselves as a culture you know that mm -hmm. you know when when saeed writes on orientalism that is such a huge moment of 
awakening how we study Western culture, right? Right. And, you know, that I can watch, like, Indiana Jones and watch it knowing that this is a very Orientalist film. Yeah. Um, still incredibly enjoyable and, and you know, a, a great work of art, but still an Orientalist film. Um, right. But it took lots of critics studying lots of media literature film whatever to come to the conclusion to to be able to organize and describe this particular type of criticism you know there's always there's always that thing that like you know critics hated it audiences loved it yeah and you know the thing is critics watch more movies than i do (laughs) That's yes, this is true. That is Critics fair. are if you're a movie critic, I'm I'm just saying know what you're getting into if you're going to read criticism. Because if you're a movie critic, you've seen so many movies that they're gonna start blending together and you're going to start yeah. noticing the patterns. You can't help but notice right. the patterns and the tropes and the conventions, you know? And absolutely. That's how we start to break molds and find something new and interesting. No, I I for sure agree. And also just like, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good explanation on that. And it's kind of the same when you have scholars dedicating their lives to study things for the betterment of society and everybody. So I think there is a bit of a separation, but where it unifies in what it's trying to do is important. Mm Mm-hmm you know, bringing that information to light for others so that they don't have to do it. And I think making it available for everybody. Right. But also having people who study it further is kind of a nice way to go. And you saw it with the Library of Alexandria, and then you start to see it now mm-hmm. more, where we have so much information available to us. And I think, you know, in, in closing our tour, I think it's important to note that we live in a time where information is so readily available, but it is also so important to look at things with a critical lens and to really understand that it wasn't always like this. Mm -hmm. Things weren't always available and things were always kind of locked. But now, and like you just said, we have the ability to sit back and have all that academic research behind us and just kind of view different things with different lenses and be able to kind of learn from that and hopefully push from that because I think, you know, given the information age that we live in and the accessibility to that, you know, there's a lot to be learned, but there's also a lot of things to unlearn as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, let's, uh, that was pretty well put. Oh, well, thank you very much. I guess we can, uh, do we have to, it'd be weird if we burnt down this installation, right? I mean, yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's not do that. Um, no. <laughs> uh, we'll find we'll find another way to. Uh, uh, I guess first we have to find our way out of this. Yeah, place. find the labyrinth and the scrolls on the ground. At the yeah, the yeah. Um, yeah, they didn't have exit signs uh, back no. then. No. <laughs> no. I mean, it took them so long to get that that system in place. So I'm sure a map came later. I think the real lesson to this is that. Every old building was just a fire trap. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how. They're all made of stone. I, 
That's a really good point, actually. I, I guess, guess if you get it hot enough. Rolls catch on fire. I guess that's must. I, I mean, yeah, there would be paper. Is, wait, is this the? <laughs> is this the forty-eight BC equivalent of jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams? Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> Bush Big did Library of Alexandria. Oh shit! Oh man, that's it. Oh god! Dang, well, you solved it. Uh, if you'd like to hear other uh, random stuff that we sometimes get up to, you can find me at Xanosaurus on Instagram, and you can find me at at Josemino Art on Instagram. And we really appreciate you coming by the Uncanny County Museum today, spending your time with us. I've been Zan Peters. And I've been Joe Semino. And we will see you next time. Bye.